This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to The Screen Show. My name's Jason DeRosso. If you're looking for love this week, the powdery, flowery kind that usually pops up in the final reel of a 90s rom-com from Hollywood, for example, well, you're not going to find it in the films I'm talking about. But I'm going to be talking about two movies this week that are very much about love. It's just that they're very much about women who are pining for their lost loves, the men who are no longer present in their lives for various reasons. They're both films that, on one level, are a bit like very sad country and western songs sung by a diva from the pre-popified era of country music, maybe back in the 1970s. On another level, both films are also very serious and bold statements about the political situation in the countries in which they're made. I'm going to be talking about a film from Kosovo today and a film from India. Now, if you've been listening these last few weeks, you'll have noticed that there's been a recurring theme of war, especially the kind of conflict where the violence is at close quarters, where neighbours are fighting neighbours. And I don't need to tell you, unfortunately, this is very much a theme for our times. The highest profile movie in this recent bunch is undoubtedly Belfast. You would have heard Kenneth Branagh talking about this memoir film a few weeks back. In the last show, I spoke to the director of the Oscar-nominated animated documentary Flea, which is still out in Australian cinemas, the film about a gay Afghan refugee. And then, of course, there was the director of the excellent gripping movie about the Srebrenica massacre, Quo Vadis Aida. Well, the theme continues this week with a new film that, like Quo Vadis Aida, deals with the former Yugoslavia, in particular, a village in Kosovo struggling to rebuild after the war. And what makes this film different to all of those other movies I've just mentioned is that it's a film about the aftermath of war, in which the hardest thing to deal with is not rebuilding the house that was burnt down by the enemy. It's not even recovering physically from the hardship or maybe from the wounds that you suffered. The hardest part is dealing with the absolute uncertainty of a missing loved one, in this case, a husband. Now, later in the show, as I mentioned, the theme of looking for missing loved ones, yearning for them, continues when I speak to the Indian director of a stunning film about a young woman yearning for her lost love, which is set against the backdrop of campus protests and police brutality in contemporary India. It won Best Documentary at Cannes, and it's one of the best things I've seen in recent weeks, if not months. But first up, I'm speaking to the director of this film from Kosovo, it's called Hive, and it's a film that picks up where a film like Quo Vadis Aida left off. It's a film about a woman whose husband is missing, and she refuses to believe he's dead. In his absence, she must find a way to support her family of teenage children and ageing father-in-law, which is not easy, considering that the expectations of women in this place are very much about lying low and staying at home as a sign of respect while the head of the house is absent. Hive is based on the true story of Fahaya Hoti, a woman who founded a cooperative of women from her village to make the roasted capsicum condiment Avjar. It's a beautiful, smoky, orangey condiment that you can buy in supermarkets here. Very yummy with grilled meats, but you can just spread it on bread too. So this initially seems like one of those almost American ideas. Life gives you lemons, make lemonade goes the common cliche. And you can imagine this being remade in Hollywood, but set in somewhere like maybe southern France after one of the world wars, maybe starring Juliette Binoche. 
The title, Hive, refers to the hive of activity of the women, I suppose, but it also refers to a modest side hustle that this woman has, making honey, a family business that she has taken over from her husband. But she struggles with this business because the bees are always stinging her, and she reflects they never used to bite her husband. The writer-director of this film is Blerta Bachelet, and she's pretty much come up with a postcard from the cinderblock backwaters of the lush Balkan countryside here, a very vivid film with a documentary realism to it. It stars Albanian Kosovan actor Yilka Gashi, almost a dead ringer for Sandra Bullock, by the way. She's a stoic presence here as she wipes the sweat from her brow, suffers the verbal and even physical abuse of the local men, and faces down her insolent teenage daughter. Bashley studied filmmaking at NYU and she shows a keen instinct here for rhythm and movement in a film that might have been sluggish if it had been poorly directed. But she captures the unspoken longing and sadness of this woman with great empathy and the film draws you in to its protagonist's determined struggle. A struggle not just to build economic stability but also to keep it together emotionally. I mean, what would you do if you lived in constant hope that your husband would return some day down the dusty path, but you knew, in fact, it was more likely he would turn up in a UN body bag in a makeshift tent morgue, and you had to go and identify him? It's enough to break a person mentally, and that's what you're watching here. A person, a very brave person, resisting this psychological crack, like a tree in a hurricane. Coming up, you'll meet director Blerta Bashley. Blerta Bashali, welcome to the screen show. Thank you. How did you first find out about this amazing woman, Farahia? Um, yeah, well, she is amazing. So thank thank you for saying that. And um, I heard a story about her on uh, TV. Uh, I was still in US studying for film, and my husband heard this story about a woman who having lost her husband during the war, had to start working and she took a driving license and was prejudiced for that. So I sat down, listen, I don't usually listen to the news, but luckily he does. So um, I sat down and I I heard her story and I was really impressed by that story. It did look, uh, it did sound to me a little bit interesting and maybe something I, I can approach with a satirical approach because it's uh, something I used. Uh, it was the approach I used in, in my previous short films. And um, so I thought maybe this could be another time when I'm dealing with a serious matter, but maybe it will have a lighter, more satirical approach. But then when I met Fatia in person, um, which was the same year, which was 10 years ago, um, I, I realized that this woman is really a special person. And this, the way she was talking to us, the way she explained how she dealt with everything, I thought that this is not going to be anymore anything. This has nothing to do with satirical approach. This is going to be a really realistic 
strong person on screen and I, I think I should approach it with a more social realism kind of approach because she is she was this really real strong person sitting in front of me. Was that hard for you that you'd, this is your first feature film, and usually when people make their first feature films, it's a continuation of the tone that they've been developing in their short films and in their student years. So was that quite difficult for you to suddenly think, no, I'm actually changing here to fit this material? Um, no, actually, well, the last short film I did was a little bit like this. So maybe... Uh, unconsciously was a little bit continuous from that one uh, but I did I did do ex more experimental shorts I did shorts when like uh, it was very stylized kind of composition so not documentary not um, so I did try a lot of things and I do and I still, still do like let's say even even shooting style um, I still like really stylized compositions and all that but uh, for this particular story, I think it was a natural transition from the last short I did. Uh, and no, honestly, I did documentaries as well, and it felt almost like shooting a documentary um, and just really wanted to be as um, as organic as possible with this type of story. Where, where did you shoot? Did you shoot in the actual town where she's from? Uh, no, no. The town, uh, which is it's actually a village, it's it's um, burned down. It was burned down during the war. A few years after the war, there were still some burnt houses and, and things like that. But then people slowly uh, rebuilt their houses and the village looks pretty new now. So it doesn't look nothing like uh, the years after the war. So we had to find another village, which uh, is called Yanieva, where we shot. And the houses look uh, very similar to because it's half abandoned and the people did not uh, create new houses. So it looks very similar to post-war villages in Kosovo. It's such a, a land filled with trauma for these people who are returning after a war to find that their villages were burnt down and looted and and trying to rebuild a life and also obviously central to this they're trying to locate their loved ones missing men usually presumed dead but everyone wants to hope that they're still alive and so forth so all of that is so powerful but on top of this what makes this film so interesting is that this is a very critical film about the society it's a very um you don't pull any punches in the way that you depict this society. And quite frankly, it's misogyny. Um, the way that there are, as you mentioned earlier, the word you used was prejudice, but there, there, there is a lot of prejudice towards women here being independent, especially widowed women and the stigma around women whose husbands are either dead or perhaps missing, trying to, as your protagonist here does, trying to forge a new life for themselves. It's not viewed very well. Now, was that difficult to do for you, to criticise so severely or so so strongly, let's say, not severely, but so strongly, this society? Uh, well, no, <laughs> because um, I wanted to talk about that. I was surprised. Um, we've lived quite difficult times as a country. Um, we've been occupied. I, my second script is, deals with that. We've lived in occupation, but we really helped each other. So we, um, there were people who left the country because to for like uh, to provide for their families because it was impossible to survive in Kosovo. So 
let's say my cousin would help us financially um, because my parents decided not to leave Kosovo and it was difficult. Their wages would like just really sometimes never um, didn't help me uh, help us uh, meet our ends uh, every month. So uh, in that sense, like people were really stronger together, whether that was men or women here, like there's a community, we have like a Catholic community, it's a larger Muslim community, but um, in a way, like let's say religion was never, never something that we really um, uh, worried about. So people were just really um, getting along together anyhow. Um, But, uh, but then when, when this happened, and if somebody would tell me there's a woman who there's a group of women who lost their husbands and they would start to work, what do you think people would react to that? And I would be, yes, everybody would just jump in and help them. Um, and when I heard that they were prejudiced and these, I mean, the whole society, as you said, was traumatized after the war. It was a really weird situation in Kosovo where we were really happy to be it was really chaotic. We were really happy to be free. We didn't know what to do with the freedom all of a sudden. Uh, and then there was pain and uh, for the lost and, and missing people. So it was really a mixture of feeling. Um, but uh, for these people who really lost their members, I, I luckily didn't lose anyone during the war, but um, these people have lost family members. Uh, they were not, I mean, Fahriye did work from home. She did some um, tailoring at home so she did work a little bit from home before but for the women from the villages was usually expected to not to be a housewife and nothing wrong with being a housewife if you choose to but uh, for these women was expected to be housewife and especially because they lost the man of the house they were expected that they will sit down at home and mourn and cry every day and wear black clothes uh, or, or at least dark clothes because it's not in our uh, tradition to really wear black that much but to to not wear, wear very colorful uh, or not to look happy and and not even and working and driving was too independent so for even for me coming from here what that's surprising and I really wanted to talk about it because I think things are better now but I think we still have more to do about women rights not just in Kosovo but anywhere in the world and I I thought it's important to talk because uh, we need to talk about it as much as some it did hurt some people that I talked about it. Do you think I mean what strikes me about this whole story and Fahariya's search for her husband, is that collectively there's also an element of denial, of course. People don't want to believe that their husbands or sons are dead. They want to think that they'll come back, even 10, 20 years later. And I found that very powerful. And perhaps do you think in some ways that the villagers and the men in the village who became angry at these women starting this business were kind of in denial themselves. They almost wanted to, part of their anger was rooted in this denial, as if to say, your husbands are coming back. They're not dead. Don't move on. Was that, do you think that's part of their, was that part of their reaction? Uh, It could be. Um, I think, I think it was difficult for everyone. That's why I'm saying a traumatized society. Uh, I think it is a patriarchal society uh, even today, but I do agree with you. I think everybody was living in denial, and that's something I tried to portray through the old man and through the daughter, um, because it's hard for these people. I mean, the when I asked Fahriye 
it was a little bit before starting the shoot. I just wanted to ask her one more time. And at that time when I asked her, it was about 20 years after the war. And I asked her, do you still wait for him? Fahri, do you still think he's going to come back? In my mind, she would just said no. And, and, and she said, yes. And I was like, really? Sh- I mean, it, I, I must say I was shocked because I thought by now she kind of really realized that maybe they're not coming back. But when she said yes, when she said, she said, I still wonder what if he comes back? And she was saying, what if he comes back alive? I was like, really, this must be the hardest feeling you can live with because you're never giving up until you find out you're really never giving up. And all those men and and women from that village have lost someone and they're never giving up because it is believed that these people were uh, killed, were uh, burnt and were put in a truck, burnt and thrown in the river. And, and when I talk to forensic people, usually when they're burned and, and thrown in a river, it's hard really to ever find something about them. Yes, that's right. There, there's, a, there's a river running next to this village. And of course, that river is seen as off limits. It's become a place of taboo in a sense, because there is that knowledge that a war crime was committed and, and bodies were dumped there. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, that that was yeah that was the, the hardest uh, for me to uh, kind of portray in in the script, but also like that was her answer was a decision to how to end the film because I wanted the film to end a little bit more on a happier scale. Uh, but then I was like, I have to balance the uh, the sense of her moving on because they did move on, the women, and they joined their forces together because they had to do it. And, and I'm glad they did because it's such an inspiring story. Uh, but uh, but in a way, there's never going to be a closure to their uh, to the story of the missing people. So I wanted to kind mm. of that was the hardest thing to do a little bit balance because. Uh, it seems like it's not it's not going to be a closure for these people no well i mean it's unfortunately it repeats again and again in history but when people can't find bodies i mean it's just such a tragic thing for people it's a double tragedy in a way um yeah. because there is no closure as as we say i think it's interesting and quite moving the you begin the film with her Faharia attending, uh, you know, there's there's a marquee, and we've seen this before in the ex-Yugoslavia. You know, there are there are there are forensic experts exhuming bodies, and relatives wait anxiously, line up to inspect the remains that are there. And of course, she doesn't find, you know, on this occasion, her husband her husband's remains. But then later, you have her climbing into a truck full of body bags and going through them. Such is her desperation. Did she tell you about, were these moments she actually told you about or were they, these purely dramatised or were they things, that ideas you had from your research? Um, well, the truck, I, I mean, honestly, I don't rem- I don't think she told me, I don't remember. I, I, I don't think she told me that she actually climbed a truck, uh, but they told me that they would enter tents, for example, um, before they would allow them. Um, because uh, Fahriye, what she did, I mean, she was a very proactive person. What she did, she, w- she would organize a lot of protests for people to find the missing people. She would go and identify sometimes. I mean, she was like in charge for the whole family because she lived with her husband's family. So they lost more men in the family. So each time 
there was um, each time there was someone from the family to be identified, she would go. And she was like, uh, sometimes at, at some point she thought that she saw a jacket of her husband on TV. So she would go to all the organizations and, and all the, uh, any remains of, of bodies in that, from that region and try to find him. So for me, it was that, uh, she was really searching for him for a long time and she, she still does, but in that, especially after the war, she was like really searching and I wanted to, to describe that character. Yeah. I even had comments like people, um, uh, script consultants or, uh, telling me that, um, she looks too, she looks very strong from the beginning and how are you going to build up that, like her becoming a little bit stronger towards the end as a character arc. And, and at once I tried in the editing to move that scene a little bit later, but then I was like, uh, Fahriye, it was that kind of person. I mean, um, maybe she didn't climb a truck, but she, uh, but she did enter a tent to like, um, to like just go and open it. Cause when they would bring bodies from, especially from Serbia, they would lay them down in a, next to the border and people would pay homage, homage to, to the, to the body. So it wasn't actually identify, identifying them at, at that point. It was more just to, to, pay an honor to, to, to the victims and the families would always go to the border and wait. And then the forensics would do this. So it wasn't even meant to be discovered, to be like uh, identified, but still Faria said, um, I and many families would maybe sometimes open a, a, a sack because they wanted to see maybe, maybe they're here. Uh, so wow, that was open a body me, bag. Really, yeah. 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 For for me, that was like really important to show because she was that kind of person. She was that strong person who didn't sit down and wait. She was always in action. And and for me, that's why she could do it all. That's why I wanted her to be strong from the very beginning. Uh, on ABC Radio National, you're listening to the screen show, and I'm talking to the writer director of the new film Hive, which deals with the true story of a woman who uh, is remain, has remained without her husband uh, after the Kosovo War and the true story of how she rebuilds her life with a collective of women from her village making a, a particular um, capsicum-based condiment that is very much loved, especially in that part of the world, Avja, I think I'm pronouncing it right. Um, the woman's name, of course, was Farahia Hoti and I'm talking to writer-director Blerita Basholi. You mentioned character arc before and it's... It, interesting on your first film this is another question about i guess making a first film and, and and a question in particular about all the people that come in and tell you how to make it i imagine when you're doing the first film <laughs> um was was it hard to maintain your voice you know who who were the and who were the loudest voices in the room where did you get most of the money from like who who did you have to sort of at least nod to the most yeah um well i didn't i yeah i have an ego so i don't know <laughs> No, I'm joking. Um, well, you know, it was, I don't usually open up so much with my scripts. So I'm, I'm with all my shorts, I would write them, uh, shoot them, edit them, and then show it to people. And this time I decided I'll be more open and then and, and show it uh, to people in the script stage and the editing stage. At some point, I think I showed it to too many people. So at some point I was like, okay, this is, um, we need to stop and, and, it, uh, and I'm not going to take opinions anymore. 
but I think it helped me a lot because I did get a lot of point of views about different things. And then I would try things, but then um, I always, I always take uh, comments and uh, advice is really um with really ca- I care about these advices but I really take a step back to like be able to absorb and then make my own decisions uh, because uh, a lot of times people I mean pe- different people react differently different people think that things should be shown differently and I really wanted to always go back to what initially really inspired me from this story and what what did I want to say with it from the very beginning so that's how I kind of, especially from for the beginning of the film and the ending of the film, that's how I made the decisions. It was always talks with people, uh, let's say for the ending, a lot of talks with the editor, um, but um, but it was always in 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 the serving to the story and not to really uh, all the opinions we we were hearing about it. So we were really trying to be careful with what people are saying to us, and a lot of these comments really helped us. But sometimes it was made more of people's approaches on how they want, how they would tell a story uh, or this story. Um, but um, with, uh, in terms of like financing the film and like uh, who we really, uh, we were here, we work with uh, public funding. So it's, uh, you're really free to do um, anything you want. And uh, as long as you're reporting about those finances, um, and oh, I so have this a really is, good this is, this is mainly a, a, a public-funded film from Kosovo. Yeah, it's all public. It's public funding from Kosovo, uh, which is, um, uh, we have a Kosovo Cinematography Centre, which that's a film centre, uh, which we uh, apply for projects. And um, I joined, um, I asked uh, the producer, Ul Uka, um, if he liked the script and he if he would like to apply with me. So he loved the script and we applied together. And then we applied in, in uh, Macedonia, in Albania for co-production funds as well. And then the latest one was Switzerland, which jumped also with co-production funding, uh, which was really interesting because the first year they didn't fund us. And then the next year they did. And uh, which actually helped the production because um, Kosovo, uh, gave the most funding, but it's, it was very low uh, budget. So we really had to go to other countries to complete the budget. Was Fahaya involved a lot by the time you were shooting? I mean, was she coming down to, I mean, look, she's, she's clearly a very strong woman, um, but did she, did she keep a, a sort of respectful distance or, or did she collaborate with you well into the project? Um, no, she didn't come to the shooting at all. I wanted her to um, be in the protest scene because the images are from real people, uh, from real missing people. And, um, and her husband's picture is also among the others. So I wanted her to hold uh, her husband's picture. And she said, yes, she wanted to come. But then she's, she has a factory. She, I mean, she opened this year a factory. And by the time we were shooting, she was preparing for it. So she, she didn't have time to come. She was very collaborative in sense of, of meetings. And she provided us with these pictures and took all the rights. And she would also show us a lot of pictures so that we can uh, refer to the costumes and the set designs. Uh, but um, in terms of coming to the shooting, she, she didn't really... Uh, want to interfere so she was really um, not she didn't even ask to come to the shooting to be honest because she was like um, you guys know what you're doing we really tried to explain to her how does it work with fiction 
um, because she did documentaries before. And I really wanted her to understand that this is a fiction so that she doesn't have uh, false expectations. Um, I wanted her to know that I'm going to portray as much as I understand from her. I'm going to do my best to do, to be truthful to her story, but this is a fiction. We need to create a certain storyline and then we need to recreate everything. Um, and I'm, I'm glad we really spoke about that because I was really, really afraid that uh, of her expectations and I really didn't want to hurt her with this film. Uh, but she was very collaborative in meetings. I tried not to meet her a lot of times because every time I would meet her, she would um, she couldn't sleep all night because all the memories she would have to bring back many memories. So I really tried to meet her a few a fewer times, but then stay longer with her um, so that I can finish all my questions and I don't have to go back too too often to like uh, make her say all those things. Congratulations on the film. It's called Hive Thank and you. it's out in Australia at the moment. Thank you. Thank you so much. Filmmaker Blerta Bashley, and you can see her very impressive debut feature, Hive in Australian Cinemas, from this week. This is the screen show brought to you by ABC Radio National, hosted by me, Jason DeRosso. Every so often in this job, you hear about a film that's perhaps a little difficult to see because it's just screened at festivals so far, but everyone you respect is speaking very highly of it. And then you see it finally, and it surpasses your expectations. Well, that's the case with this next film, a documentary fiction film from India that won Best Documentary at Cannes. It's called A Night of Knowing Nothing. And it's a romantic film with a narcotic pull about a fictionalised young woman whose voice we hear on the soundtrack reading letters of longing to her lost boyfriend, while on the screen we see grainy black and white images of impressionistic glimpses of university life. A university life that becomes more and more involved with the tumultuous political upheaval in modern-day India. The film opens with footage of a crowded party of young people dancing in front of a screen where a Bollywood film is being projected. We don't hear the party, but we hear silence and then a soft voice against the silence, the young woman who reads out her first letter to her departed lover. And over the course of this film, a film which incorporates documentary archival footage of left-wing campus protests against the nationalist Modi government as well as home movies. We learn more about the doomed romance between this couple, how their love crossed caste boundaries. And we're plunged into the teeming political ferment of the student revolts as she, our protagonist, is also swept up in the revolutionary atmosphere. Combining all of these elements into a film of modest means requires a wise filmmaking head. And my next guest, director Pale Kapadia, displays such wisdom in no uncertain terms. Watching her wonderful film with its deep, lush black and white, its spartan but tactile sound design, and its sense of menace and romance, is a bit like the experience you have when you're walking after dark in a park in late summer. Figures and foliage become hazy to the eye. And just as you feel accustomed to the velvety embrace of it all, you notice through the trees a row of police trucks and riot police. And you realise it's all about to kick off. I don't know if you can tell, but I've been reading a lot of perfume reviews in my spare time recently. I'll cut to the chase. This is a film that depicts a country coming apart over ideology, religion, class. And it's also a study of a young woman at a crossroads of the personal and the political 
Director Payal Kapadia is coming up. Babu, तुम कैसे हो? तुम्हें ही सोचती रहती हूँ। हर गुजरते दिन थोड़ा ज़्यादा। मैं ठीक हूँ। पर ये सब जो हो रहा है, कुछ समझ नहीं आ रहा। Payal Kapadia, welcome to the Screen Show. Thank you very much for having me. I absolutely adore this film and I want to know more about how you made it and what inspired you. Tell me first of all about the device of these love letters. How did you come to that? So both your questions are quite linked. When we started shooting the film, and I say we because the film uh, was made by me and my partner, Ronabir Das, who's the cinematographer and editor of the film. So uh, when we started shooting, which was around 2016, 17, at the time, uh, we had just come out of this long strike uh, at the film school that we were part of. And we wanted to kind of just shoot campus and things that were taking place afterwards and interviews with our friends. So when we started out, we just had this desire or impulse to shoot, but there was no real film in mind at the time. We had no idea where this would go. Then years passed and we left the institute and also lots of things started happening all over the country. There were protests in various universities across India and we would meet friends and tell them that, you know, we started making this film, but we don't really know where to go with it. Can it just be about our film school and how do we go ahead? So some of them were very generous and they had been shooting themselves in different universities at different protests and they were very kind and they said that, you know, we have a lot of footage. We also don't know what to do with it. Take it. It's nice to have generous friends. So we got all this footage and the years passed and, you know, this this archive of memories started growing. And then we had a lot of footage. We started thinking of it then as a found footage film. Uh, because so many years had passed since we had also shot what we had shot back then that we had changed as people. So even that footage began to feel as though it were found. So the narrative device was kind of a way to approach found footage. Like how do we put together so many moments, so many events and such diverse nature of footage to kind of form a cohesive whole, which more than chronologically represents a time, but more emotionally represents uh, what we felt during these years. And this was actually the impulse of, you know, writing like a fictional narrative to approach non-fiction footage. This is something that you you write and that you have an actress voice and it becomes th- this framing device. It's quite beautiful the way that it interweaves with other more documentary material, which is also equally, I mean, the contrast between them just sort of exalts the power of, of both elements, really. Tell me more about the film school, first of all, because someone does mention in the film that a couple of the campuses where there was a lot of student upheaval were very much rooted in a kind of left-wing political tradition in India. How about your own film school? Tell me about that. So, yeah, you are right. It, uh, in the, there are universities which are more left-leaning, especially universities like the Jawaharlal Nehru University, uh, where there are, you know, um, the student union is actually an election that happens between the student wings of all the political parties. But in our film school, it's not like that. The union is non-political. It is like uh, traditionally it's more for 
day-to-day -day functioning of the institute you know so the union doesn't really have like a clear uh, like a party agenda as such the school has been around since the 60s but we've also been notorious i guess for perpetually having strikes and protests at the at the film school as well only because it's it's a public funded film school and there is always this conflict between the person appointed from the state to run it and also like academically and creatively what the space needs or whether it's been you know protests against fee hikes against uh, privatization of these institutes this is not the first government to do it we've had these problems with previous governments also because it's an expensive school to run and uh, it's very easy to first you know get rid of an art school so you know it, it seems like non-essential in a country like india and it is a privilege to be there to be studying film so there's always been clashes this is not the first time but this particular protest was um a strike was the one that took place in the very beginning of this uh, uh this government when it came into power in 2014 ours was the very early kind of uh, protest that took place because there we have a governing body which is supposed to you know, run the institute and and decide a lot of the policies so this government had had put a lot of members of who supported their uh, supported them and supported the rss as as in the committee so and there was it was a very arbitrary process you know a lot of them did not have any idea of how the school could function or how academics and cinema functions and things like this so what we were worried about that this would be just one step towards you know completely changing the, the the sense of the space or also privatization which is our biggest fear so this is why the protest took place it lasted for 139 days wow i mean i i just love the way that these letters that begin that we hear in voiceover and they're so beautifully mic'd and beautifully performed the very intimate letters to a lover begin as that and then start to be these letters these one-way letters really because we don't know where this lover is and perhaps he's even dead we don't know because this was an you know not approved this romance for various reasons but the way that we start to hear via these letters about this girl's politicization i guess and her questioning of the political movement and we see these wonderful images at one point of the female cops that are on the front line with the students and these very intimate images actually like you're just a couple of feet away from these female cops and we see that in portrait you know in in, in close-ups almost i mean tell me about how you decided you wanted to weave the political into the personal in this way and and the images you found so beautifully to represent this mm. I think a lot of the editing and writing came from the images. So I would be with my co-writer Himanshu, we and my editor, we would all watch all the rushes that we had and then try to think of what kind of letter would work with what we had because it's really a, a process like found footage. This was an interesting process because there were a lot of things that failed and in a true sense of experimentation, we had to throw out a lot of letters. We sometimes joke about it that we could make a whole other film with, with you know, those things because they just didn't work. But the police brutality was something that was a theme throughout the film. It starts, you know, being discussed very early on. And then finally, you, you get to see it very blatantly on screen. But I have been in a lot of protests 
and I've always had this this gaze towards the, the lady police where I have this feeling of you know that she's also in a difficult position but the next moment I'm being grabbed by her and shoved into a police van so this contradiction is something that all of us because I mean the Indian police then they're really not paid well and they, they don't I mean it's 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 not an easy life and here we are as you know some of us as privileged students and there's this contradiction so I think and you contradictions evoke, you evoke Pasolini of course his famous statement yeah. about 68 and his sympathy for the police as you know the sons predominantly but I guess the daughters as well of the of the proletariat and the stu- the rioting and the protesting students as being um, the sons and daughters of the bourgeoisie uh, which is an off quoted and, and 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 makes sense over this footage yeah but it was also like in a country like India, a university like JNU is actually something that can be accessed by even everybody. It's really affordable, and which is why I also uh, say in the film, I mean, Elle says, I mean, the, the writing of that point is also that are the two people across the barricade this time so different? Because in a university protest of, say, a, a university like JNU, it is really marginalized groups that get access to education and which is what they are fighting to retain. So JNU was one of the other was one of the primary campuses where where the anti-Modi protests really kicked off and that was I think that's mentioned in the film by journalists as being the most left-wing or the the sort of bastion of left-wing politics in India which is in which city? New Delhi. New Delhi. Okay. And how far is that from the film school you went to? Oh, that's quite far. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the film school we went to is close to Mumbai. It's a, it's a three-hour drive from Mumbai. It's in a city called Pune, and uh, New Delhi is, uh, is far away. From, yes, far away from that <laughs> big country like Australia. On ABC Radio National, you're listening to The Screen Show, and I'm really pleased to be talking to the very talented director, Payal Kapadia, about her film A Night of Knowing Nothing, which is a documentary hybrid, a remarkable film, Uh, made up of all sorts of very intimate images, predominantly black and white, and also images full of kinetic energy and brutality, it has to be said, of uh, the wave of protests across India that uh, rolled out in recent years against the Modi government. Um, Many of them, many of these protests, of course, led by students. And also, has to be said, the Marxist-Leninist faction of, of the left as well, which which that's an interesting portrait, an interesting element of this documentary. We have this very avant-gardist sense of left activism, and it's very interesting to see the way that the party members talk to the students and that there's what seems to be quite an authentic interface of dialogue between them. I mean, on one hand, you've got people in the frame that are very driven politically, but you're not necessarily making a film that is without nuance and without a sense of self-questioning too. Yeah, I think I think a lot of hard left-leaning people would also criticize it for those very reasons. Uh, some of my own friends who are in the film do the same. But I think for me, one, and me and my co-writer also, Himanshu, uh, when we were in film school, we we were not particularly political, outwardly political people. And it was during the strike and what happened subsequently that we started to become aware of certain things that were taking place and also how we were thinking about our society. So I think when you're kind of pushed in the corner, it makes you react in a way that you didn't think you were capable of. 
and i think this is what happened during the strike and to a lot of people a lot of students across the country who would ordinarily would just like to go to their university and have a good time but now you can't i mean you you need to question what's going on so i think this was a kind of a political awakening which is why even the character in the film we wanted her to be somebody who's kind of more vulnerable and more questioning and figuring out things as things go on because i think that's okay too everybody doesn't need to be so sure of how they feel which is why the title is also a night of knowing nothing because when you are in protest for such a long time and you know day by day you sort of learn and question what you did the day before even and that's why i wanted to we wanted to kind of make a film which didn't have this uh, this this sense of knowing everything this sense of being sure this sort of um, yeah so this there was a kind of a vulnerability that i was interested to explore this is a film full of beautiful moments and wonderful juxtapositions that i find hard to fully illustrate on the radio but is there an image or are there various images that are your favorites so there moments in the film that you think really sing and really express what you were trying to do formally i think there are a lot of sequences that i know that i struggled a lot with and finally to see that how they've turned out for example the letter where she finally says goodbye and it's juxtaposed on the footage of the of of the sera festival this juxtaposition is kind of strange because she's talking about something very personal and kind of you know talking to her lover about letting go and then it's also this images of celebration of a festival that we take very uh, that's that's very common here uh, every year and it's a very big festival uh, whenever i watch it i do think that th- this juxtaposition seems still quite interesting to me maybe it doesn't work for everyone but no no uh, i mean i particularly loved and it was it was footage i think i'd seen on social media but you've used it here wonderfully well and it's footage from a security camera of police breaking uh, into a, breaking through a barricaded door and then corralling students out with their they're not even batons they're these huge sticks and the students are terrified and it is this unblinking eye that goes on and on and on until finally one of the cops notices the camera and smashes it with his truncheon the way that you've used that within the film proves that we still need cinema i think because you can see that and it's horrific when you see it on social media but where you've placed it in the film and the sound design around it is wonderful tell me about that decision you must have known you wanted to use those images but the decision of where to use it and how you're right that all the images that are in the film that are the found ones for example the the phone footage the cctv these are all out on social media i'm not using anything that nobody has seen before or something like this but i think what was when these images came out for a lot of us if we saw it say on whatsapp or on facebook besides being extremely horrific they gave us all a sense of absolute helplessness and grief and i think being able to reach a point in the film where somebody who's not uh, completely aware of what's going on here can watch and feel that same emotion was something that i was keen to do it's it's an amazing piece of very disturbing footage i mean this whole film is like being in some kind of drug induced dream half dream and some of it at the beginning is very sweet and but it's wistful and it's romantic and then it becomes increasingly just dark it's quite shocking and and incredibly impactful but i want to ask also about you winning at can for best documentary 
Has Modi or anyone in the government spoken about this documentary? It's still quite in the fringe, no? Because in India, what does Khan is not Bollywood is the big cinema. People are interested to watch Bollywood films. Independent films like this are still quite small or irrelevant. Uh, there are many filmmakers who are making films which are much more in your face and they're out on the internet to see. So I think they're more concerned about that than a film like this. How, are, are you concerned at all, and concerns maybe the wrong word, but I, I imagine you've encountered many reviewers who assume that there's an autobiographical literalness to what's presented in the film. And yet, from what you're telling me, it's quite a fictionalised work. And this protagonist, the narrator, is quite fictionalised. You know, because Ackerman, for example, you know, Chantal Ackerman, another filmmaker who's used letters and so forth, is perhaps a bit of a reference point for reviewers. Um, And she was much more, you know, she was quite self-referential and autobiographical. This film isn't, though, is it? And we, what's people's reaction been like? Do they assume it's your story? Yeah, but I think I've said it so many times now and in every sort of synopsis or thing about the film and it's represented, I've always clearly said that it's fictional, but I can understand why people might make this assumption. Some people also think that the letters are real, which I find <laughs> as if it was really found. Like some people have come and ask me, said, how did you find it? There's a Blair Witch Project kind of thing to this <laughs> to this film because it's this stash of letters that are found and, and there's a title card at the beginning of the film. So it's almost playing on a kind of horror trope in a way. <laughs> um, and of course, then you've also got footage of a very middle class Indian family from the 70s or something, which is too far away for it to be you and in fact in the credits it's you know it's obviously not your family but that was interesting to me because this uh, this film is also about caste in India and um and how it's still so impactful and and how it's such an important issue politically in India today yeah that's true but uh, what we wanted to really talk about was this between relationships in our families these things existing that we don't want to talk about and we like to believe that political figures come out of something external, but it's not true. It comes out from, uh, you know, day-to-day people we know, people we are in relationships with are the ones who are finally the ones who support a certain ideology. And it doesn't come from something, you know, simply political, but it's very, very social. This was an element that we wanted to talk about in the film that we cannot ignore as if it's something external and outside of us. You've done it very effectively very artfully as well. So I congratulate you on it. It's I a wonderful film. I also wanted to be, sorry, uh, yeah, but continue. also kind of self-reflexive on all the political, thought, uh, you know, left-leaning movements because, because she says in the middle that, you know, that we can stand for certain social issues but ignore uh, the discrimination within us in the movement. This is something also that we I wanted to reflect upon that even our own movements are wrought with these discrimination, discriminatory things. Attitudes, yeah. Um, Was Ackerman an influence here? Was Chantal Ackerman an influence in in this film or is she a key influence for you? I do, yeah, of course. I mean, Chantal Ackerman, yeah. Uh, News from Home is a film that I really admire. But there are various, like Chris Marker, uh, Sans Soleil is a film that I took a lot from just in terms of how he uses sound and juxtaposition of text and also the fictional element and the found footage. So Chantal Ackerman and Chris Marker, Miguel Gomes also, 
Yeah, the Portuguese, you know, the contemporary Portuguese um, director. Yeah. These are some of the filmmakers that I think kind of uh, freed me from the restrictions of what nonfiction can possibly mean. Because, you know, you can have this very rigid form of what is documentary and but a lot of these filmmakers have have sort of broken these ideas or kind of re-understood the idea of nonfiction, which I find very exciting. Even say Apichat Pong, uh, or aesthetical. Like Myst- yeah. Mysterious Object at Noon. So some of these films were a great influence and kind of opened up my mind to these ideas. Payal Kapadia, you made a wonderful film and um, I hope you make many more. Thank you very much for joining me on The Screen Show. Thank you very much for having me. Filmmaker Payal Kapadia, her can-winning documentary, A Night of Knowing Nothing, is an incredibly important, bold and poetic work. Look out for it at festivals in this country this year. I will remind you when it does get programmed, as I'm sure it will. It also, just a few weeks back, won the Antenna Documentary uh, Film Festival here in Sydney. So a lucky few of you out there have already seen it. Uh, The film has also been bought by the Film Guild, the American streaming platform in the US, so it will pop up online in the near future too. By the way, something completely different. If you're looking for a film from India to go and see in the cinemas this week, I haven't seen it yet, but it is releasing in Australia. It's a Bollywood film called Gangubai Kathiawadi, and it's about the real-life Madam and Mumbai mafia boss. It's a big-budget, lavish-looking film at least by the looks of the trailer. So it might be one to check out. Gangabai Kathiawadi out this week. That is it for the screen show for this week. I'm Jason DeRosso. I'll see you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.